sermon notes, you click that and you get a PDF copy of it. Um, also want to mention, I don't think we did this, but correct me, maybe we did, but if we didn't, um, as part of our church family meeting this year, we uh, introduced that we've revised our statement of faith. So we were working on this for an, uh, a little bit and we pre uh, presented it at the congregational church family meeting. Uh, if you're wondering about that, there's copies of it on the back table if you'd like to take a look at what we've revised to. Uh, if anyone really wanted an older copy of what we used to have for a statement of faith, we can also give you that. Um, but we made a number of changes to that. So, um, I want to talk about living with big faith this morning. Um, having said that, or maybe as a little bit of a, a note before we begin, I, I understand that when we talk about faith, when you talk about lack of faith, it's been abused in Christian circles over the years. And so I always feel a little bit like you've got to give a little bit of a disclaimer when you start this, uh, realizing that people have been manipulated, people have been ostracized over lack of faith, uh, told that they aren't receiving healing due to lack of faith. And I, and I would say a lot of harm has been done over the years judging people when it comes to this thing of faith. And even how we understand that is something that's complicated at times. And so when we talk about faith, when we talk about lack of faith in our lives, I just, I think we need to be aware of that. I think we need to be aware that it can trigger people um, because of really hurtful things that have been said. And, and I've certainly, I've, I've witnessed that. I've witnessed things that have been said that you just go, oh. And um, having said that too, though, Jesus talks about faith a fair bit. And so to just sort of, not talk about faith or to say we're not, we don't, we can't touch that anymore would not also be the, the appropriate thing to do. In, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, he refers five times with his disciples. He's specifically talking to his disciples in each instance, but he refers to the little faith that's operating in them. And, and immediately you hear that, right? Right now you hear that and you go, okay. And immediately you, you there's probably two responses we have. Either we might feel we respond negatively to that, like, okay, that, that feels like condemnation. Or we can respond positively where we go, you know, Jesus is real about our condition, but he's, he's offering us something more. And, and I would obviously, I just encourage us to embrace this as positive, that, that Jesus, he sees where we're at with faith, but he's offering us something more in these instances. And so, um, Jesus is the essence of honesty and reality. Is he not? Like he's the very, he, he, he is the essence of that completely. But he's also the essence of love and grace. And so that's the, those are those two things that we can hold equal, right? That he's, he's gonna be real about the human condition, but he's the essence of love and grace in the midst of it. And so, and he's calling us to believe in him. And, and I believe that he's, he's calling us the, to the essence of living with faith. So in these, in these five accounts, we're going to go through five accounts this morning in Matthew that I want to take us through. And uh, we find what I've called the five D's that keep us living with little faith. Uh, five instances where Jesus, he's confronting our unbelief, and, and he's offering us, in each instance, he's offering the disciples and he's offering, by extension, us 
an alternative. And, and, and in every instance, he's offering us an alternative where he's saying, come on, live with big faith. See who I am. And so I want to I take us through that this morning. Because in, in every one of these accounts, Jesus, he's confronting responses that would appear or even seem completely normal to people. That, that this, this, is, this would normally, in the human condition, this is how we would react. This is how we would respond. And Jesus, it would, it's an acceptable, normal part of life. And Jesus offers us a very different alternative in these five instances. And so I want to talk about those. The first one, um, if you want to turn to Matthew 6, we're going to read a few verses here. I'm not going to read all of them. Um, but it's living with big faith amidst distress. So Matthew 6, this is part of the, the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read verse 25, then I'm going to skip down to verse 31 just for time's sake. So Jesus says there, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Then he goes on and he says in verse 31, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You know, I just, I, we need to stop and pray, actually. I felt like the Lord just said we need to stop. So, Jesus, I, I want to just lift this up to you, Lord. We're, we're talking about instances here that, um, Lord, maybe, maybe they can, in a way that we can, we can really identify with these things in our lives. I believe that we can. I know that I can. And Jesus, we want to ask that you would open up our eyes, open up our hearts, open up our minds, to receive what you have for us this morning. Jesus, we pray that as you are the living word, that you would come to us this morning and that you would make this really real for us. Pray that you touch us where we need healing, touch us where we need your comfort in our lives. And Jesus, we ask that you'd be glorified in this. Amen. So, in this, Jesus is, is addressing these this, these worries, if you will, about what will we wear, what will we eat. He's talking about provision and needs, right? And, and, but it, but it's, it's beyond that even here, what he's getting. He's saying it's, it's about what we seek, what, what captures our time, what captures our effort. He talks about the things that we run after, the things that we pursue. So this isn't just about provision. This is, Jesus is getting at lifestyle here. Uh, he's getting at what, what is the trajectory of your life? What, what are you focused on? What are you honing in on? What's the things that really is driving you when it comes to your life? What, what he's, and he's getting at what kingdom are you trying to build and maintain? Or, or how are we trying to save ourselves, trying to prove our value and our worth? Maybe that we're you know, trying to prove that, like, that I'm good enough, that I'm, that I'm worthy enough. And Jesus, he, he bookends this, these verses here talking about worry. 
And, and it's this distress that he's, he's identifying and talking about that gives birth to these cravings. These, these, what are you running after? What are you pursuing? What are the things that you're worrying about? We, we, you know, the things like, we don't have enough. Or, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with these thoughts, like, I'm not succeeding enough. I'm not meeting the mark. I'm not doing all the, or, you know, why, why are so-and-so, or, or these people, why are they able to do that and I'm not? And it's all that swirling stuff in the world that leads us to worry and anxiety. Am I, am I off now? Or something? Oh, okay, that's, okay, that's why. Sorry. Good. So, these, these bring up questions for us, right? Like, what, what causes you worry? What causes you anxiety? What causes dread in your life? Or where do you think that you can handle things on your own? Where, where are you finding yourself dependent on yourself? And, and you might be doing pretty well even. Like, in, in this culture... You know, the danger of self-sufficiency in an affluent and wealthy society. Consider what danger can that play on our dependence on Jesus when for a lot of things we can just make it on our own. And Jesus here, he's offering us an alternative to all that stuff that we might get caught up in, all this distress that we might feel. He says, Seek first my kingdom. Seek first my righteousness. He's saying, your father knows. It doesn't rest on you. Don't, don't be driven and consumed by needs, wants, and desires of this world, which we all know we can all be consumed by those things. Very, actually very easily. He's saying, seek me first. Seek my kingdom. Trust me with your needs. And what he's doing here is he's calling us to live with big faith rather than being distressed with what we need. He's saying, look, look at me. Look, look at, and, and I didn't read it, but he's saying, look at how the father, look at how he takes care of the birds of the air. Look at how he clothes the flowers of the fields right? Look, just look around and see God's provision at work in this world. He's saying, don't get wrapped up in all that. One of the, one of the things that, that I've found that, that is really, really helpful in this is, is just practicing. When, when, I, when I feel myself getting into those states, right, is practicing gratitude and thankfulness. Like, actually really practicing that, stopping and considering what are the things that I have to be really thankful for? Where can I find gratitude in my life? And specifically cultivating that and specifically then thanking the Lord, like Jesus, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing in me. Thank you for what you're doing in my life. So that's the first one, living with big faith amidst distress. Second one is living with big faith amidst despair. So if you turn to Matthew 8, uh, verse 23. So we're going to read a few verses here, Matthew 8, 23 to 27, if you want to turn there. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. 
Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this even the winds and the waves obey him? So Matthew's Jewish audience that he's writing to, they, they have an, an anxious relationship with the sea, if you will. It was the place of deep, the deep. It was the place of chaos. We see this throughout scripture. It was the, it was the, uh, the home of Leviathan. It's spoken of in scripture constantly as the place of chaos and darkness. Psalms talks about how God stills the roaring sea. In the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation, interestingly, the sea is gone. It's no more. So there's, it's, it's, you know, it's a picture of that chaos and darkness is gone. So it's interesting when you think about the Sea of Galilee, where this takes place, is really just a lake. Like if you go to the Sea of Galilee, it's really just, it's a big lake. And, and, but yet the Jewish people referred to it as a sea. It kind of gives you a picture of how they saw water. But this gives us helpful perspective in these verses. However, having said all that, frequent squalls coming up on the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee was a real thing. It was, and it was dangerous. And you're, you know, we're talking about first century fishing boats here. Like this wasn't modern day boats. And so um, this, this was a tenuous situation that the disciples are in. I mean, really, it's really dangerous. And the waves, the waves are going over the boat. Right? So they're, they're in this massive storm. And, and Jesus, it says, is asleep in the boat. He's asleep. And the disciples' response is what? Like, panic, right? Like, they are, they are in, and these are fishermen. Consider that. These are fishermen. So they're, they're in full-blown panic over what they're experiencing. And they're like, we're going to drown. And, and when Jesus, when they wake Jesus up, before he says anything to what's going on, he addresses them. He doesn't, he doesn't address the storm. He doesn't address the winds and the waves. He says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you not, and what he's doing, like, like what he's getting is, have you not seen already what I've done in your midst? Like up to this point, have you not seen what I've done? Do you not know who I am? And I'm in the boat with you. Like I'm here with you. And so in the midst of this situation, Jesus is this picture of complete peace. What, one of, one of the, the purposes of this account and, and the way that Matthew places this within his gospel is that we are, we're seeing Jesus' complete power over nature. He's, he, he also talks about his complete power over demonic forces and now he's, he's actually showing that even over nature, Jesus has total authority. Every power, Matthew's revealing, Jesus is over every power. And the fact that Jesus is like he's sleeping amidst this just speaks to this, this calm authority that he has. It's interesting in the, in the early church, uh, in the first and second centuries, the apostolic fathers 
would actually, they'd use this account as an example of the frequent storms that come up in life out of nowhere. And the point being that they, would, they, they taught on was, do we trust the power of Jesus in the midst of the storms of our lives? Another, another interesting kind of note here is that the word here that Matthew uses for storm is the word where we get our word seismic from. So he's, he seems to be alluding almost that this isn't just a, a normal storm, that there's something about the storm. When Jesus gets up, right, he, it says he rebukes the winds and the waves. So there's something potentially more than just a normal storm going on here. There's like, Jesus has awakened the powers of darkness and they're coming at him with everything they've got. And Jesus is like, you've got nothing on me. I, I'm simply going to rebuke it. So, again, it, it brings questions for us up, right? Where, where are you genuinely afraid? Or where do you struggle with fear? Where do you struggle with fear that you don't admit to other people? You might put on a pretty good facade, but you're struggling with fear. Where do you, where do you find that your mind is quick to start playing out all sorts of scenarios in a various issue in your life? Are there, are there areas where you are, are afraid to the point where it actually consumes you physically? What, what about the storms in our lives that aren't calmed right away? What about that too, right? Because like, you read this account and you're like, well, Jesus gets up right away and, and he right away deals with the situation. But what about those storms in our lives that they're, they're raging and they're not dying down right away. It, it, there's, it's taking time. They're ongoing. We're wondering, where, like, where is Jesus at? And we find ourselves struggling with despair because we don't have a neat and tidy answer to it. Are we, are we seeking Jesus? Or are we more inclined to dwell in our own negative thoughts, our own negative conclusions that we're we're bringing it, that are coming up. Do I, do I believe that Jesus can respond to a storm like that in my life? Third thing, third way that he's calling us to big faith is living with big faith amidst doubt. So if you turn to Matthew 14, I'm going to read verses 22, or sorry, 23 actually, sorry. Or no, 22, sorry, 22 to 32, yeah. Matthew 14. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night he was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. 
Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. I'm going to end there. Verse 32. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. So, where Jesus was in the boat during the first storm, now the disciples are in the boat alone when the storm comes. Jesus isn't there. But Jesus was the one, he, he had been the one that clearly sent them into the boat. He had sent them onto the lake. And the picture is clear for us here. Jesus is praying for us and he comes to us in the middle of the storm. And, it's, and, and I find this, this account so fascinating because initially when he comes to them, I mean, what, what a crazy, crazy situation, right? Like they're in the middle of the lake, the storm is brewing and Jesus comes to them like walking on the water. And Peter initially, like he's filled with faith. Like I'm like, it's, it's an astounding account where Jesus, Peter's like, you know, if it's you, tell me to come. And Jesus is like, he doesn't say like, no, 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 calm down, Peter. Like calm down. Just, of course it's me. No, he's like, yeah, okay, come on. And Peter gets out of the boat and starts walking on the waves, on the water. He's walking to Jesus exactly as Jesus was walking. <laughs> like, now here's the thing. He was initially filled with faith, right? He responded to Jesus' words with courage. He, he, like, he responded to what, like, what a crazy invitation that he responds to. And the thing is, though, it wasn't really about the situation. Not really. It's not about the situation. It's his eyes are on the Lord. His eyes are on Jesus. It's the, the situation is just whatever. Because his eyes are on Jesus. When he, when he was focused on Jesus, he's fine. More than fine, actually. Like, like just stop and think about this. Stop and think about the impossibility of what Peter is doing here. This is not something you do in the natural. You ever seen someone walk on water in the middle of a raging storm? Like, this is not something that you even remotely consider ever doing. And, and Peter's doing it. He's walking on the storm. The problem was when the circumstances became the fixation and not Jesus. The moment that Peter began to realize and be consumed with the circumstances and the reality of the situation and go, uh-oh, he begins to sink. What, what changed in the physical realm? Anything? Did anything change in the physical realm? Nothing. The only thing that changed is doubt entered the picture. So what, what happens when storms come up in our lives? We sang about it this morning. And, and, and storms come up in our lives. Storms are part of the Christian life. Storms are part of life. 
What, what happens when we encounter really scary situations? Or what about when we happen just like smaller stuff, but, but challenging stuff, like just day-to-day stuff, challenging situations? Do we have faith that Jesus is over every single situation? Every single situation, not removed, not distant, not somehow busy, no, no, involved. Not, not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about intellectual faith here, right? This is not like intellectual, yeah, yeah, I know that. But faith that directs how we respond and how you live amidst the storms that come up. How do we respond in the moment? So again, it brings up questions for us. Where are you consumed by circumstances and situations rather than having your eyes fixed on Jesus? Right, Hebrews 12, where it talks there, tells us, fix your eyes on Jesus. And why it goes on, so you do not grow weary and lose heart. Keep, keep fixated on Jesus. Or another question that can come up is, where have we given doubt space in our lives? Where do we actually allow doubt to be part of how we live? And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying there isn't room for deep questions and soul searching. There is, like 100%, and that's in Scripture. But doubt is a different animal where we're actually allowing that to control how we live and how we respond to life. You know, perhaps you find yourself at times overreacting in situations and you're wondering even, where in the world does that come from? Why, why do I react like that in that situation? Why, why does that trigger me? Why do I find myself getting hot in my body? Why do I find that my physical body is, is reacting? Why do I feel like that in this given situation? Why do I overreact? Because our, our history and our experiences play into that. Your body actually has a memory. Your mind has a memory, but your body does too. So in, even in that stuff, in our lives, we can invite Jesus in. We can ask him for healing. We need, we need to notice how, how Peter responds when doubt begins to overwhelm him, and he begins to sink. Right? He, do, he doesn't wait till he's almost drowning. He doesn't try to take control of the situation and be like, oh, I'm going to somehow get out of this. I'm gonna, like, he doesn't. The moment he begins to sink, Peter's like, Jesus, save me. He immediately calls out to him. We were, we were uh, last, I think it was last week, uh, it was one of the really bad Oh, it was a Saturday. It was a really bad weather day, and um, we had to go into the city. And so we're coming around the corner in Linden, and uh, and, and and it was just it was bad. And I wasn't going fast, but as as we took that corner, all of a sudden our van, you know, our winter tires are, are on the end of their life, and we took that corner, and all of a sudden I'm like, I, I'm I'm losing the, the the control over the steering wheel. Like I I was starting to head that way rather than around the curve and worse off we've got a vehicle coming at us and i'm like oh like it was you know it's that split second where you're like this is really really bad like this could like 
I said after to Jess, I'm like, you realize that I was like literally going to take the ditch there. She's like, yeah, I thought you were. I'm like, well, it was that or a head on. And, and in that instant, like it's just, your body goes into like survival mode. It's panic. Like you just, you got it. You do what you have to do. And, and thankfully, I was able to, like, thank Jesus, I was able to pull out of it. But in, I, later after I was thinking, I'm like, in that instant, I didn't call out to Jesus. Now, maybe if it had gone on for a few more seconds, I, I may have. I, I would hope that I would have. Right? But it was, it was a lesson for me of going, it was, it was a little bit of the Lord's like, Paul, it's not on you. Like, it's not on you. In those moments when we find ourselves in panic, when we find ourselves sinking, is our first inclination to call up to the Lord. Or do we try to take matters into our own hands? And, you know, we, we obviously, we don't, we don't know the tone that, that Peter, or sorry, that Jesus responds to Peter here, right? We don't know in that moment. But I, I think, I think Peter was, in, or Jesus was encouraging Peter. I, I don't think it was a rebuke. I think it was, Peter, why, why did you doubt? Like, you were walking on the waves, buddy. You were there. He's like, come on. Don't you see who I am? Don't you see what I can do? Like you're walking on this storm. I, I, I think it's a call to Peter, big faith. Don't operate in little faith. Jesus offers us the alternative to doubt. He's like, keep your eyes on me. Keep putting your faith and your trust in me. Fourth way that we can live with big faith, it's living with big faith amidst distraction, the fourth D. Turn to, if you want to turn to Matthew 16, verses 5 to 12, I'm going to read here quickly. Matthew 16, when they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and they said, it is because we didn't bring any bread. <laughs> Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you still talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it, he's like, how is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread. <laughs> Duh. But against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. <laughs> this is such a great account. This is a strange conversation, right? Like... He's saying, watch out, be on guard against the yeast. Okay, what's he talking about? He's talking about the ways of thinking, the ways of living. He's talking about the ideology of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So the Sadducees, they were the priestly party. They were the wealthy landowners, actually, at the time. They were interested in keeping their comfort and wealth intact. They wanted to keep the establishment going with the Romans. It was a good deal for them. 
Pharisees, on the other hand, you know, they were a little bit politically more radical, a little bit more far right, if you will, a little bit more legalistic, a little bit more fundamentalist. But they were really concerned about proper appearance and image, right? Jesus warns against both of their influences. He's like, be aware. The disciples, (laughs) they're fixated on the natural. What will happen if we don't have bread? What's going to happen, guys? We don't have bread. What will happen? Small thing, right? They're hungry, obviously, and they're, they're, they're worried about being hungry. And Jesus is right there. Jesus, he's kind of got this history of making large quantities of bread out of nothing. And he's like, uh, why are you worrying about bread, guys? Like, have you forgotten what I did? Yeah, I was like, (laughs) I'm sure even if it was a year ago, you'd probably still remember the feeding of the 5,000, right? It's kind of a big deal. So, but they're, I think, here's the point. They're fixated and distracted by the natural. They're really distracted. Because, and and that's why they miss Jesus' point entirely. And Jesus is like, get your minds off physical bread. This is, that's nothing for me you need to realize the real danger that's at hand. Religious leaders, they had a lot of influence at the time. Right? Like, like culturally, their, in, their ideas permeated that Jewish culture. The, the, the ideas, the ways of living, the ideology of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, all the disciples had grown up in that. that that's what they knew. And... and we know the disciples had a lot of trouble seeing Jesus for who he was and what he was doing, right? James and John, what are they? They come to him and say, who's going to sit at your right and left hand, Jesus, in your kingdom? They're, they get their mother to come to him at one point. They're like, are my sons going to sit with you? Are they, are they going to be in the position of power? Peter's like, you're, you're not going to be killed, Jesus. You're establishing your kingdom. What are you talking about? Right, so they... they they were influenced by the thinking of the day. Right? It's interesting. And this isn't, uh, this isn't by accident. We're after this. Right after this, the very next section, Matthew puts Peter's affirmation that Jesus is the Messiah right after this. Where, where Peter declares that. You are the Messiah. And Jesus' point here to them is, guys, watch out. Don't be distracted. So this raises really, really important questions for us. Where, where have cultural narratives and norms captured your heart and your mind? Are, are there ideas and views we have that we are so tied to them that we can't fathom if Jesus were to challenge us on them? Do, do you, like, do we think... I think we read the New Testament Gospels with the general approach that we would never respond the way that these people did to Jesus. <laughs> we would get it. We, we would see what Jesus was up to. We would embrace who Jesus was. We wouldn't be so blind and resistant to him. Really? Do, do, are we sure about that? Are, are, there, like, are there any views that we have that we believe that Jesus would challenge us on? Is there, any, is there any views that we have that you think Jesus would challenge you on? Or, or do, we, do we believe, like I, 
I had my, this, this conversation with the Lord. I'm like, do I believe that Jesus is, is pretty much aligned with everything that I believe? Hmm. Do, do we even consider this when we examine our convictions and our belief systems? Because Jesus is pretty radical, folks. And he challenges societal norms. He challenges cultural norms. And, yeah. I wonder, too, like, is Jesus reminding them here, I'm not limited. I'm not limited. Bread? I can do whatever I want with bread. But if you get caught up in the yeast, if you get caught up in the cultural narratives, norms, expectations, you will choose to limit me as a result. Can we, can we miss what Jesus wants us to see because we are distracted? We've got to remember that we have the same DNA in this way as the disciples. We are, we are prone to the exact same thing in our lives where we become fixated and distracted by the problems all around us and we forget what Jesus can do. And we can become so blinded to the things of this world and you know what? It's easier than ever now to, because of algorithms that will play to your disordered desires. Jesus is calling us to big faith, big faith. Do you know what I can do? We've got to stay close to Jesus, listening to him, being in his word. He will, Jesus will stir faith in us. Okay, I want to quickly, I want to wrap up with the last one, and that is living with big faith amidst disillusionment. Let's turn to uh, the next chapter, Matthew 17, verses 14 to 21. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus, this situation here, Jesus, Peter, James, and John had just come down from one of the most extraordinary experiences ever. They had met on the the mount. Jesus was transfigured before them on the mountain. They They had witnessed Moses and Elijah coming. I mean, it was like an extraordinary spiritual high experience. It was like, wow. It's like, it's like going to a conference, Right? You go to, you go to a, a, some sort of church conference or you experience such an incredible time with God. And, and, the, and 
We need those. Like, I'm not not dismissing those. Those things are so important to stir faith in us and to stir expectation and to stir longing for God. I I, I miss, during these last two years, I miss those, those conferences. But then you come down and, and, you, and you hit real life after, right? Real life still hits, and, and that's what happens here. What Jesus immediately encounters, they come off the mountain, and now he's facing tragedy, he's facing need, and he's facing failure. Like, they can't do this. It's a situation that speaks to discouragement and disillusionment. It's, it speaks to the last two years of our lives, folks, of what we've lived through. Where so many people are disillusioned. And Jesus responds and he says, he, ta- he says, you're an unbelieving and perverse generation. Like, what's, what's all that about? Like, it can seem like a harsh response from Jesus, right? Like, why, why did he respond like that? And the conversation afterwards, it gives us the answer it was, it was this lack of faith. It was this weakness of faith that Jesus, he found so disheartening. And Jesus, he didn't try to massage his answer. He was honest and he was direct with the disciples. He's like, because you have so little faith. There's also some of the manuscripts of Matthew's gospel. They add what, what Mark's gospel adds here to this account. And that is that where Jesus adds that this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. And, and Jesus, he, he says at the end, he, he mentions a common idiom of the day, if you will, uh, that was amongst the rabbis of the day. A sort of, where speaking to impossible situations, right? Moving mountains from here to there. That was a common thing that the rabbis would talk about to speak of just impossible situations that couldn't change. And Jesus references it in regards to faith. And he says, if you, like, like, do you know how small a mustard seed is? Like, like, like it's, it's, it's like minuscule. And he says, if, if you've got faith on that level, it, impossible situations are nothing for me. And it seems like the disciples, what was happening here is that they were trying to make something happen in the natural. They were relying on their past experiences, their own abilities, what they thought would work to, to cast this demon out, to heal this boy. Right? They, now again, remember, they had previously been sent out. They had healed all sorts of diseases. They had casted out demons already. They had done all of that. So it's like, they, they knew what that was like. And, and you wonder, like, where they look and they go, well, we, we know what to do. We've, we've done this before. Guys, come on, we can do this. And, you know, you wonder if, like, was there assumed knowledge? We know, we've got the knowledge. Was leading them to less dependence actually on God. And that's kind of what Jesus gets at with them. Like where they've got, we've done this before. And Jesus is like, no, you haven't encountered this. A.W. Tozer says, and I, I've, this quote always strikes me. And I wonder what we think about this statement. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. Do, do we stop and consider the need for renewal and revival in our lives and in the church? And are we praying for that? Like, I mean, really praying for that. 
Jesus reveals that the issue here is faith. Specifically, our faith on Jesus rather than dependence on our own abilities. Like we know what to do. What, what did the father need in this situation? The father of the boy. He needed faith. What did the disciples need? Faith. Right? Do, do, you, do you believe that Jesus desires to raise your level of faith? Do we believe that Jesus desires to raise our level of faith in the church? To be expectant. I go back to this boy in this situation. Like the boy is living a life of horrible experiences. It, it's horrible. Like if you put your place in this boy who's the living, breathing human being who was, he was consumed by this demon and, and was having these seizures and there was nothing that could be done. It's horrible. The father is absolutely distraught. When you read this account, I mean, you read Mark's account, the father is just like, nothing can be done. He comes to the disciples, probably having heard, these guys have cast out demons. These guys have healed people. Like they're, nothing. And Jesus, and Jesus' answer here, he's telling us something. If it wasn't, he says for prayer and fasting to some degree, nothing would have changed for that boy. Do we think about that? Nothing would have changed. It was because Jesus practiced that in his life on this earth that when he came into that situation, he immediately spoke it, rebuked it. It's gone. And Jesus implies, he says, guys, this is the answer for you as well. Do you believe? Do you know what I can do with just a little bit of faith. And he's saying, follow me. Learn from me. Jesus is, or Matthew's putting the focus here on a lack of faith. And, and again, however uncomfortable that might be, and I think it can be uncomfortable. But he's, he's asking, he's, he's sort of asking us, this, like, what are, what are you content and comfortable to live with? Are we content to be like the disciples who were powerless to do any, nothing for the boy? They couldn't do anything for him. Or do we see our desperate need for dependence on the Lord? Like that we have no hope but that. How do we want to live? And Jesus offers us the alternative. He's saying, don't depend on yourself. Don't depend on your intellect don't depend on your reasoning. Don't depend on your knowledge. Don't depend that you think you've got it figured out. No, no, no. Depend on me. Trust in me. It's, it's what we've been saying this morning. Jesus is the cornerstone. It, it really is. It's simple, but the cost is that this is, it's all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. He is the hope. So, you know, we're looking at these, these, all these Ds. Doubt, distraction, distress, disillusionment. Distress. Do we ask? Like, do, we, do we ask ourselves in that? 
when, when we encounter stuff like this in our lives, where's the Lord in all of this? Where's the Lord? Where is Jesus? Where? Because he is. He's, the, he's in them. He's there. Where is the Lord? In, in, in these accounts, um, Jen, you can come up. One of the things that stirred me as I was reading these accounts and sort of just thinking about them and meditating on them and trying to put myself in some of these situations and what Jesus was saying. The thought that, that I had was, do I, Paul, is, it, is this historical Jesus for you? Or is this living Jesus to you? Is, is this just historical Jesus that we read of on a page? Or are we talking about the living Lord Jesus who's right now over all things and working in all things? not removed at all. And I, I believe that we need to stir faith in our midst. I, I believe that these are days that we need to pray for an increase of our faith. That we need to be stirring faith in our midst, stirring for what God wants to do, seeking him for what he wants to do, for an, an increase of expectation, longing, hunger, desire for the things of God. So I invite you as we, as we end here. Let's, let's, how does God want to stir faith in you? I actually didn't, I didn't want to end with any questions or take home questions today. I, I felt like it was just that. It's just actually really simple. Where, where do you need faith stirred in you? Where, where does God want to stir that in you? And are you, are we willing? Are you willing to say, yeah, Jesus, I, I, I want that. I need that. Jesus, we thank you so much for these words. We thank you for the fact that you are so involved in our lives. Thank you that you are, are calling us and you're so gracious. Saying, don't, don't live with little faith. Be stirred to big faith. Holy Spirit, we just I, I want to invite you right now to speak to us, to move, to have your way where you want to stir that in us. Lord, we want to say yes.